Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Eri, Nini, and Chen. I make welcome for you. This is the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 179, Seti's Renaissance. Today, Egypt has a new king, again. But after decades of political uncertainty, stability is returning. A new family rules the kingdom. The gods are smiling on their chosen ruler. And thanks to well-preserved records, we have a surprisingly detailed idea of Seti's first few months in power. We can even trace the pharaoh's itinerary. This episode comes to you on behalf of Eric from Minneapolis, Joan from Nanaimo, and Pierre from Orlando. These fine folks made donations to the podcast in late 2022, when I began writing this episode. Pierre, Joan, Eric, thank you kindly. Your support is most appreciated. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us embark on a royal renaissance. Our story begins in 1303 BCE, approximately. It was late June or early July. In the Egyptian calendar, this was the third month of Shemu, the harvest season. The land sweltered under the shining heat of high summer, and in the halls of the royal palace, the sounds of grief and mourning rang loud. King Ramesses I was dead. He had ruled a short time, maybe 18 months or two years at most. Now, he was gone. A new monarch, a new Horus, had appeared. The new pharaoh was named Suti, or Seti. His name means one belonging to the god Seth. It's an unusual name, which references the chaotic but mighty deity Seth, Setech. King Seti was not the first man in his family to bear this name. His grandfather was also called Suti. But it is an uncommon name in Egyptian traditions. And Seti is the first pharaoh that we know of to bear a name like this. I'll explore the significance of Seth and Seti in greater detail in the future. For now, it's enough to know that Egypt's new ruler had a rather uncommon name. Seti was approximately 30 years old when he gained the throne. He was already mature and experienced in government. Previously, Seti had worked for his father, Ramesses I, as a high-ranking administrator and official, so he followed the pattern of several recent kings, 
By the time he took the throne, he had plenty of governing experience behind him. Unlike the recent pharaohs, Seti was also the physical son of his father. In fact, this was the first father-son inheritance in 35 years. Ever since the death of Tutankhamun, the crowns of Egypt had passed not to physical heirs, but political ones. A series of high-ranking officials, I, Horemheb, and Ramesses himself, had taken the throne when their predecessors died without heir. Power abhors a vacuum, and in the absence of royal sons, powerful courtiers had seized control. Now, the inheritance was returning to its ideal state, a transition from the Osiris to his physical son, Horus. Ramesses I fulfilled that ideal when he created Seti as the son of his body, Sa-en-Chetef. And when the old king passed and his progeny ascended, it was the first proper inheritance in three decades. Seti recognized that, and he would honor Ramesses repeatedly in different monuments. We will explore those at the proper moment. But having inherited power from his bodily father, Seti went all out on publicizing that connection. The message was simple, but politically and religiously vital. Family stability was back. The proper order of things was returning. So Ramesses died, and Seti inherited power. This transition probably happened in late June or early July. How do we know that? Well, royal texts from Seti's reign reference the month and day that he ascended the throne. Apparently, Seti's rule began on day 24 in the third month of Shemu, the harvest season. That would place the death of Ramesses I on day 23 of that month, the day before. So the succession probably occurred in high summer. The land baked in the heat. The Nile was at its lowest ebb before the flood. And in the halls of the palace, one incarnation of Horus died, and another appeared. It's not often we get a month and a day for the pharaoh's accession. Sometimes scholars can pinpoint a likely date, at least down to a month or a season. But Seti's monuments give us a wonderfully specific record. In fact, Seti's reign overall is remarkably well documented. The king ruled for approximately 11 years, and scholars have texts and dates for almost all of them. In some cases, we have so many texts that we can even reconstruct the pharaoh's itinerary, his movements through the country on a month-to-month basis. The start of Seti's reign is one of those periods. From the first 12 months of his rule, scholars have identified a series of texts that record the king's presence and deeds. Some of these are vague, just year one with no specific date. Others are incredibly specific, down to the month and day. As we begin Seti's reign, it seems a good opportunity to follow a pharaoh in real time. Ramesses I died around day 23 in the third month of Shemu. At this moment, Seti, as the crown prince, was probably residing in the city of Memphis, Mennefer or Hikupta. I'll explain how we know that in just a moment. But if Seti was in Memphis, he may have been attending to his father, or conducting royal administration. Either way, the news came. Ramesses I had died. 
Seti was king. Seti would mourn his father's passing, and he would oversee his burial. When Ramesses died, his body would go to the embalming houses. Priests and physicians would remove the organs, rub the limbs with oils, and immerse the whole body in a bath of natron salt. The corpse would lie in its bath for about 40 days, or four weeks in the Egyptian calendar. In total, the mummification could take as much as 70 days, or seven weeks, or even longer in some cases. The science of mummification varies wildly from period to period, and even ruler to ruler. Fortunately, we are now entering a historical era where information about mummification becomes more common and far more detailed. So pretty soon we'll get to dive deeper and deeper into that science. For now, let's assume that Ramesses I underwent a standard embalming. His body might take approximately 70 days, seven Egyptian weeks, to be prepared. That gave Seti at least two months before he would conduct the funeral, and then celebrate his coronation. He could not announce his appearance as the pharaoh before the burial of his father. So you might expect the new king to sit around in his palace and enjoy his new wealth and power. But Seti was made of different stuff. From our records, he seems to have been quite busy in the first few months. The first record of Seti's reign comes from the south. At the mighty fortress of Buhen in northern Nubia, we have a record of Seti visiting as king. This trip occurred very early in his rule, just a few weeks after he took power. It seems that the ruler came south, sailing upriver, to visit the great fortress. And he left a monument, a stone stealer that marks his appearance. The stealer goes like this. Quote, Year 1, the fourth month of Shemu, day 30. Long live the Horus, Seti I, and all his titles. Now, his person, the king, was in the city of Hikupitar, or Memphis. He was doing the things that pleased his father, Rahorakti, and Pitar the Great, and Atum, the lord of both lands, and all the gods of Ta-Meri, Egypt. Then his person, the king, decreed the establishment of sacred offerings for his father, the god Men-Amun, who lives in Buhen. The offering in this temple would consist of loaves of pesen bread, honey cakes, 100 of them, jars of beer, 4 of them, and bundles of vegetables, 10 of them. Likewise, the temple was filled with God's servants, lector priests, or priests who could read, and the workshop was filled with slaves, both male and female, from the captives that his person, the king of Egypt, had made. His person, Seti, sought out benefactions, or good things, to do for his father, Min-Amun. The king made for the god a great and noble stealer of good stone, at the resting place of his father, end quote. The stela is now in the British Museum, because of course it is. The stone is fragmented, but scholars have pieced it together, and they can reconstruct the images and texts by comparing it with similar examples. The monument shows Seti wearing a long wig. He stands before the gods, Amun-Ra, Min, and Isis. The king raises a scepter, an incense burner, 
he burns incense for the gods, purifying the air with the sweet-smelling smoke. Below Seti, lines of hieroglyphs spell out the decree. It's a classic image, the king offering to the gods while describing his generous works. Seti would commission many images just like this over the course of his rule. This stela is interesting because it gives a sense of the pharaoh's itinerary. The date for this decree was year 1, day 30, in the fourth month of Shemu. In other words, Seti was at Buhin just 37 days after his father died. The body of Ramesses I was still undergoing mummification, and he was not ready for burial. And yet, Seti was off to the south to make his appearance at Buhin. Why? It seems that pharaohs often dealt with Nubia and the south as one of their early priorities. In the early 18th dynasty, for example, King Tutmose I sent a message to his representatives in the south. Soon after his coronation, one of his first acts as the king was to inform the overseer of the southern lands that he had become the pharaoh. So even back then, we can see the kings dealing with their southern colonial government as an early priority. More recently, Ramesses I had donated his own stela at Buhen. Just six or seven months before Seti's visit, Ramesses himself had gone south to make a donation to the local god. And after Seti, his own son and heir would build a temple in Nubia in the very first year of his rule. Apparently, the kings of this period considered Nubia and its colonial government as one of their early top priorities. We'll come back to that in another episode. The Egyptian rule over Nubia is a massive topic. But long story short, Seti and other pharaohs seem to have viewed their southern territories as a major focus, requiring early attention. So Seti was at Buhin, just four weeks after his father died. That was around late July or early August. Where to next? Well, a few weeks later, the king seems to have returned north. In the next record, Seti shows up at Karnak. Our next date on the itinerary is day one in the second month of Akhet. That is the flood season, the annual inundation, when monsoon rains far to the south filled the Nile River with new water. The Nile began to rise, swelling its banks over the course of two to three months. This flood started in the south and gradually spread northwards, reaching their peak in late September or early October. This was a time for celebration. Huge festivals would occur at temples like Karnak and Luxor, the Epet or Opet festivals. As the flood waters rose, Egyptians of all ranks would celebrate the coming of new life. This, roughly speaking, is the context in which Seti came to Karnak. The king was at Buhen, far to the south, in month four of Shemu. Then, about 30 days later, he was back in the north, visiting Karnak itself. We know that thanks to a stela erected at the great temple. Seti commissioned a lavish stone monument to adorn Karnak's house. This time, the stela is in Cairo Museum. It is white, made of travertine or alabaster. And I'll talk about it more in the Patreon epilogue. The stela itself is mostly tangential. What's important here is the date. Seti commissioned the stela on day one in the second month of Akhet. 
That puts him at Karnak, just as the flood season was ramping up. Working backwards from that, we could guess something about his movements. The next part is speculative, but I have a notion. Seti was at Karnak in early Arket, the flood season. A month earlier, he was in Buhen to the south. So there's a decent chance that the king sailed north from Buhen to Karnak just as the flood was truly beginning. The floodwaters would come from the south, and they would gradually lift the river upwards as they travelled north. So as Seti boarded his enormous state barge at Buhen, the waters may have begun to rise. And as he travelled northwards, the flood may have travelled with him. If that's accurate, Seti might have arrived at Karnak as the flood itself reached the city. Again, I am speculating, but imagine the optics of such a trip. If the king sailed north just as the flood was ramping up, it may have seemed like he was bringing the new waters. For the people on the riverbanks, the pharaoh's boat might appear with the rising Nile. And for the true believers, it might have appeared that Seti, the divine king, was causing the new flood. With that flood would come the silt and the mud that fertilised the fields and allowed new crops to flourish. So, from a religious point of view, Seti's journey might have been extremely well-timed. The new king, Horus Incarnate, was bringing life to the two lands. To be clear, the timing might be a coincidence. The flood season might have begun late or early that year. The calendar might have been out of sync with the seasons. There are many reasons why these dates might not line up with the ecological reality. But... If Seti went south to Nubia, and then returned in conjunction with the Flood, well, that's one heck of a power move. To the faithful, and the loyal, the new pharaoh may have seemed truly, benevolently divine. Seti's movements in the first few months of his reign are well documented. Starting at Memphis, or Hikupetar, he travelled south. He went all the way to Buhen, in northern Nubia. Then, about 72 days after his father's death, the king returned to Waset, or Thebes. He may have come with the flood at a time of great festivals. This was an auspicious moment. But Seti did not come to Karnak just to show off. He also had work to do. 70 plus days after Ramesses I's death, it was time to bury the late king. And then, Seti would need to celebrate his own coronation. That is after the break. See you in a moment. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. The year was 1303 BCE, give or take. It was late August or September. The season of flood, Arket, was beginning. And in the southern city, Waset, a new pharaoh was appearing in splendour. King Seti, or Suti, had been busy. About 70 days earlier, he had inherited power on the death of his father. Now, having travelled upriver and downriver, the new pharaoh was in Waset, Thebes or Luxor. It was time to bury his father. King Ramesses I, or rather his mummified corpse, would go to its rest in the Valley of the Kings. The tomb was small, just a couple staircases, one large chamber, and some alcoves. It was pretty, with beautiful paintings and a massive sarcophagus, but Ramesses would not lie in the sort of splendour enjoyed by his predecessor, Horemheb. The burial was comfortable, but small. It probably didn't take long to conduct the internment. We don't have any dated records for the funeral of Ramesses I, but there is a decent chance it happened in August or September of 1303 BCE. That is just an educated guess, but we know Seti was in the area around that time, and this was approximately 70 days since Ramesses had died. Assuming he underwent a classic embalming, lasting about seven Egyptian weeks, this would be a likely date for the funeral. All we can say for sure is that Seti I probably led the funeral, conducted the rituals, and oversaw the burial of his father. Then, it would be time for his coronation. Seti's coronation ceremony is not recorded in specific detail. We have some images that reference the idea but we don't have any specific text about it. We don't have the date, or even the exact location. If I had to guess, I would say Seti probably celebrated his coronation soon after his father's burial, and he possibly did so in the city of Waset, or Thebes. Why do I think that specifically? Well, one of Seti's royal names, that I'll discuss in a minute, includes the phrase Ha-em-Waset. This translates as one who appears in Thebes. It's a generic phrase, many kings used it, but if you put that together with the timing of Seti's visit, in the month of Opet, and roughly around the funeral of Ramesses I, it seems like a reasonable possibility that Seti would use this occasion to receive his crowns and celebrate his pageantry. Again, speculation on my part, but it would make sense. Maybe Seti held his coronation, soon after his father's burial. As I said, we don't have specific images of Seti I's coronation, but we do have artistic imagery that references the topic. On the walls of Karnak Temple, Seti commissioned scenes that showed him coming before the gods to receive their blessings and even receive his crowns. In one image, we see Seti I standing beneath a stream of water. Water in the shape of Ankh symbols, pours over his head, falling on either side of his body. The water is being poured out of jugs by two gods. In this case, the gods are Horus and Seth. 
Horus and Seth are the classic symbols of Egyptian kingship. Horus, the eternal king himself, protects the ruler in his everlasting incarnation. Seth is slightly more complicated, but he also gives the pharaoh strength and power, especially power to defeat his enemies. The two gods, together, represent a powerful symbol of unity, bringing together the different halves of the world, the desert and the fertile, the north and the south, the sky and the earth. Horus and Seth come together, in friendliness, to anoint their chosen ruler. Naturally, that ruler is Seti. In another scene, we find Seti approaching the temple of Karnak itself. This time, he is being led by the hand by two different gods, Khonsu and Atum. The great deities lead Seti towards Karnak, where he will meet his illustrious father, Amun-Ra, Rahorakti, and all the gods of the great pantheon. Seti wears a long wig with a Uraeus serpent on his forehead. Noticeably, he takes an interesting pose. Many of Seti's images that show him before the gods present Seti as though he is bowing. Normally, a king will stand upright, his back straight, his shoulders broad. But Seti will often bend at the waist, as if he is showing humility and obeisance before the gods. It's an interesting feature, one that is extremely rare in pharaonic imagery. I'll come back to the significance of that when we dive deeper into Seti's temples. But in these scenes, we do find him in this pose of humility and piety. It's an interesting feature. In another scene, we find Seti kneeling before the king of the gods himself. Amun-Ra, seated upon his throne, holds out a hand, raising it over the crown which Seti now wears. Seti kneels on the ground before Amun-Ra, and he wears the blue crown, that sort of helmet-shaped one. Beside Amun-Ra, the great goddess Hathor, or Huther, reaches out her hand to give her blessing to the king. And in front of this group, the great deity Jehuti, or Thoth, holds out a pen to write the names and record the years of Seti's reign. The whole scene conveys a simple but potent message. Seti I is a king chosen and blessed by the gods, and every aspect of his reign, from his image, to his names, to his longevity, is created by their will. This is classic pharaonic art. The king establishes legitimacy in connection with the gods. He is not a mere mortal. He is not wholly divine. He is the man that connects earth and the sky. The one who connects the living and the dead. The great being who connects humanity with the divine. Finally, Seti receives more blessings from the gods. In a particularly important scene, we find the king kneeling beneath a tree. Seti, wearing his blue crown, is kneeling beside the Eshed tree. This is the tree of life or tree of eternity. It symbolizes the duration and longevity of a pharaoh's rule. Every leaf should symbolize a year, so that each king could reign as long as there are leaves on the tree. Seti kneels beside the Eshed, and behind him, the great deity Jehuti, or Thoth, reaches out to write Seti's names on each and every leaf. Again, it captures the essential idea. The king will live forever, his rule will be eternal. Scenes like these do not record the exact moment of Seti's coronation, 
but they convey the idea of it and the overall significance of these rituals. The king would come to the great temples, including the Temple of Karnak, and he would present himself before the various deities. The statues of the gods, shining within their houses, would give Seti their blessings. The priests would announce his names and offer praises, guaranteeing a long life and great splendor. Seti himself would probably go through various costume changes, putting on different pieces of regalia to honor different gods and to mark different aspects of his rule. In short, we don't have the literal depiction of his coronation, but we have the next best thing, the way Seti wanted it to be seen by those who came after. Finally, there was one more thing to do. One of the major features of a pharaoh's coronation was the announcement of his names. As a king of Egypt, Seti would use five names, five distinct titles that conveyed aspects of his ideals, his piety, and his agenda. The five names of a pharaoh were called the Horus name, the two ladies name, the golden Horus or golden falcon name, the throne name, and the personal name. The personal name is relatively straightforward. The new king was Suti, or Setehi, aka Seti. This one translates as one belonging to Seth, or the Sethite, depending on which scholar you read. It's an interesting name, as I referenced earlier. But from a political standpoint, it's the other four names that really tell us about the king's agenda. As ruler of Egypt, Seti would convey his power through a series of major names. First, there was the Horus name. This identified Seti as an incarnation of Horus, the falcon, and the eternal king of Egypt. For this name, Seti called himself Heru Ka Nechet, Ka Em Waset, Sank Tawi. This translates as the Horus, strong bull, who appears in Waset, or Thebes who makes the two lands live. That is a classic name, nothing too remarkable, but it gives a sense of Seti's intentions, the way he wanted to present himself. From the get-go, Seti intended his subjects to view him as a life-giver, a king who nourished the country and brought fertility to his land. I wonder if that has anything to do with his recent trip from the south. The second title was the Two Ladies' Name, This referenced a pair of goddesses, Wadjet and Nekbet, associated with the south and north of Egypt. For his two ladies' name, Seti would call himself Wechem Mesut, Sekhem Kepesh, Der Pejut Nine. This translates as the repeater of births who repels the nine bows. This one is intriguing. Seti called himself the repeater of births, or rebirth. Another term for this might be renaissance. Seti presented himself as a kind of renewal, a second coming of the pharaonic idea. It seems that the new king was proclaiming a new beginning for the royal house. Of course, this wasn't exactly a new idea. As we saw recently in our interview with Professor Peter Brand, Many rulers used the phrase Wechem Mesut to glorify their rule. Even Horemheb had done it, just a few decades earlier. So Seti's name is definitely noteworthy, but he's not exactly innovating here. It just gives a glimpse at his larger political agenda. 
the real question was, did Seti have the talent and the longevity to create a genuine renaissance in royal affairs? That would have to wait and see. The third name is the Golden Horus or Golden Falcon name, Heru Nebu. This name is tricky to pin down in its deeper meaning. It might convey the essence of the monarch as a god on earth. Whatever its exact origins, the Golden Horus name is important. And Seti's is quite revealing. For his third title, Seti called himself Wechem Chau, Weser Pejut M Tau Neb. This translates as the one who has repeated appearances, the strong of troops in all lands. Once again, Seti uses the motif of repeating, Wechem. In this case, he is not repeating births, but repeating appearances, Wechem Chau. That is definitely a reference to his royal divinity or his godhood. As the new king, Seti was the incarnation of Horus. And Horus was the eternal king, born to rule and ascending the throne over and over again. Horus was continually appearing as each generation passed, so a name like Repeating Appearances captures that essence. At the same time, Seti called himself strong of troops in all lands. This one seems fairly clear. As crown prince, Seti had led military expeditions. As king, he intended to do the same. The new pharaoh was going to be an active warlord, leading his troops into foreign lands. Finally, we have Seti's throne name. This was the public name by which the gods and foreign rulers would recognize him as pharaoh. Seti's throne name was Men Ma'atra, which translates as the established one belonging to the Ma'at of Ra. Alternatively, you can translate it as the one who establishes the Ma'at of Ra. Throne names are quite hard to translate. They might describe the king's piety and service to the god, or they might describe the god's favor and generosity to the king or they might convey both. Different scholars translate the throne name differently, depending on their own personal assessment of these relationships. So it's not clear if a throne name like Men Ma'at Ra benefited Seti or Ra, or both. Either way, the name connected the king with Ma'at, the cosmic truth or order that Ra himself had established. This name might sound slightly familiar, Seti's throne name, Men Ma'at Ra, is almost a direct copy of an earlier one. He seems to be referencing the name of King Amunhotep III, the dazzling son, one of the last great kings of Dynasty 18. Amunhotep had called himself Neb Ma'at Ra. Seti seems to have taken that name, removed the Neb, and replaced it with Men. The two names are almost identical. This wasn't the first time a Ramesid king had done that. In episode 177, we saw Ramesses I borrow his name from a famous predecessor. Ramesses had used the phrase Men Pechti Ra, and he had taken this name from an older one, Neb Pechti Ra. That title belonged to King Amosa I, legendary founder of Dynasty 18. So Ramesses had taken Amos's name, dropped the Neb, and replaced it with Men. 
just as Seti now did with the name of Amunhotep III. It's a curious little phenomenon that appears with these two kings specifically. Later rulers, like Ramesses II, would break the habit and present their own, mostly unique, throne names. But at the start of Dynasty 19, the first two pharaohs consciously evoked famous, glorious predecessors. Why? The simplest answer is that, maybe, Ramesses and Seti needed the legitimacy. As newcomers to power, the two kings may have felt slightly insecure in a political sense. This is pure speculation, but maybe they faced opposition among the powerful or the elite. Or maybe the priests and priestesses, servants of great gods, were sceptical of these upstarts. Again, entirely speculative. But it's easy to imagine the new rulers trying to establish their credentials and taking a shortcut to public legitimacy. Borrow the names of their predecessors, especially the fabulous Armosa and Amunhotep, Use their names, with small changes, to forge a link between the present and past, and maybe reflect some of the ancestors' glory upon them. Ramesses and Seti might be newcomers, but they could still place themselves within the legacy of the most splendid rulers. Because the two names of Ramesses and Seti follow the same pattern, you almost have to wonder, did they come up with this idea together? When Ramesses became king, or was about to become king, did he sit down with Seti and plan out their respective identities? There is no evidence that they did so, but if the father and son were close, you could easily imagine them meeting behind closed doors. They discuss the political situation, and come up with the idea, if we're going to rule, let's connect ourselves with Amosa and Amunhotep. Maybe, in the halls of power, these tricks and methods were part of a discussion, a plan for the new dynasty. It's a fun idea. I would love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. Anyway, Seti's names give an idea of his political and religious identity. When you put them all together, Seti clearly emphasizes some noteworthy concepts. He was the one who makes the two lands live, so he intended to be an effective leader and ruler. He was one who repelled enemies and led troops over foreign lands. He was the embodiment of Horus, the eternal king, who appeared over and over again, repeating his appearances or births. Finally, Seti's rule was established in the Ma'at, or Order, of Ra. Seti, the one belonging to Seth, would be a servant and embodiment of Ra's cosmic will. It's heavy stuff, but then this is kingship we are talking about the most enduring and important of Egypt's social and political institutions, and, depending on your point of view, the most important of its religious tenets. The king, divine and human, eternal and repeating, was here to establish his rule, and he would build on what came before. In 1303 BCE, Egypt got a new king, again. But while the past few decades had seen uncertainty as courtiers and generals jockeyed for position, the new pharaoh marked a return of family stability. Seti, belonging to Seth, had inherited from his bodily father, the Osiris Ramesses. And this new ruler, all of 30 years old, 
was in a good position to make his mark. The reign of Seti will be a fascinating era for many reasons. As we saw today, the historical record is detailed and specific, and we will continue exploring Pharaoh's itinerary over the next few months of his rule. In the bigger picture, Seti's appearance will see a flourishing of monumental art and architecture. Many of the greatest buildings in Egypt will benefit from his attention, and to this day, modern tourists pass through the edifices that Seti commissioned. From every level of society, we are going to see some detailed and intriguing tales. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. If you are enjoying the show and would like to support what I do here, consider signing up to the Patreon. Patreon subscribers get access to exclusive perks like early releases, ad-free episodes, extended discussions on some material, supplementary notes and pictures, and much more. You can join from as little as $5 a month. If you are interested, follow the link in the episode description, or visit www.patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. My thanks to everyone who has signed up to Patreon or made donations directly. You are all too kind. Extra special thanks must go to the priests, my top tier supporters on Patreon. The clergy are Veronica, Paul, Mykost, Martha, Nidin, Ashley, Kyla, Yola, Terry, Evan, TJ, and Linda. These wonderful folks announce the names of the king as he emerges from the temple. They carry the statues of the god to show divine favour for the pharaoh. And of course, they manage the temples, organising the offerings so that the gods, and nature, can endure for another day. Truly, you are most generous. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you have enjoyed this chapter, and I will see you very soon. Oh, and patrons can stick around after the music for an extended epilogue.